sources to just sort of unfold in that way. Okay. Uh, so about those sources, you mentioned uh, about alternative archives. And so uh, can you explain to the audience what those are? And would, would these alternative archives pass the uh, smell test with your dissertation committee back in the day? Yeah, <laughs> that's another great question, too. It's this interesting situation, right, where the field of the discipline of history, and specifically if you're coming at it from a Caribbean studies, Latin American studies, or Africana studies, it's interdisciplinary, right? And so if we think about the records that people from the past could not leave behind, perhaps not simply the written word, but let's say fertility beads or Taino rock art or just memorandum like this, you know, the infamous Boakai uh, ceremony, that itself is a political site of archiving, etc. And so I think with my committee members, they were very open and welcoming to how I approach this story in terms mm-hmm. of thinking that I am going to re- uh, rely on traditional repositories, of course, the proclamations, the broadsides, the legislation, but that there's another way that Caribbean people also archive the past that includes murals, that includes places like the Citadel, that includes silence and so it behooves us in the discipline of uh, academia to think about how do we shine light on these voices, but also these people's own methods of memorialization. Do you think these alternative archives, are they sort of counter archives to the traditional archives or do you think they're complementary or both? I feel like they could do both, right? Because in an interesting way, like I, I look at some of these archives as like the stance of Aisian, um Haitian women who resisted telling where the Kakos were or where people like Shalman Pirat were. And so capturing their silence as a moment of reckoning and a moment of stance that they took, I think it is an important archive that speaks with the so many U.S. military who are talking about these people misbehaving um, and in need of a white U.S. American savior. And so I feel like if you look at sources, whether it's paintings or murals or the actions of these people in very many ways that they can complement and be in conversation with one another. Uh, Can you talk about Les Haitiennes? Because you mentioned in the book that, you know, what what you found was was you know, scanty at best, right? Like how how did you feel you had enough to sort of uh, you know to successfully sort of reposition them so they can speak for themselves in your book? Right. Yeah. That's the enduring quest. And I think particularly if you do gender studies and you want to highlight women's voices in particular, oftentimes these archival notes, as well as these recordings are left behind by men. Um, And oftentimes in terms of looking at the Kako specifically, this idea that a woman could be part of this Kako's fight, this fight for Haitian sovereignty and be listed not by her name, but simply as a Kako spy or perhaps as a cockle wife or a market woman and thinking about the role of market women, they're not only like foot soldiers, but they're also the people that are publicizing to Charlemagne Pirat, to other cockles members like Benoit Batgaville, that the U.S. Marines are afoot, right? So thinking about the role, the pivotal role that they occupy, but then also just like the repeated silencing of them. And I think mm-hmm. when you sort of collect these sources, it's important for us to trace that, call it out, um, mm-hmm. and talk about just sort of like the limitations but then also, of course, with One Avec Respect, give them a voice in the way that you can. And so that's what I hope that this book is also doing. I uh, I love the 
you're, you're citing Sybil Fisher's uh, notion that the U U.S. viewed Haiti as both infinitely distant and dangerously close. I thought that was an extremely succinct way, almost poetic way of, of describing the relationship between the United States and, 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 and Haiti. Can you kind of, uh, you know, expand on that a little bit, like what, what, what she meant by that and, uh, and why you included that in your book? No, definitely. And I think her own work draws on, you know, Belgard Smith and his own role as a politician during that time period of talking about this enduring presence, almost like the shadowy um, figure of the U.S. being physically, but also diplomatically very close to Haiti, as well as Haiti's affairs. And I think in those comments and those types of analysis, what people are really doing is thinking about just this long story of this historical past of saying, when you look at both nations' past from the 1700s, 1800s, you sort of see how the U.S. has sought to undermine Haitian sovereignty through a variety of means and for a variety of reasons, including uh, slave capitalism and the right to declare yourself as a sovereign state that happens to also be a Black sovereign state. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you, you, you're right that uh, you think that you prefer the term U.S. invasion uh, rather than sort of occupation or intervention what, what why is that uh, yeah. yeah why why is it like you are very particular about saying hey i look at this as a us invasion <laughs> let's not sugarcoat it basically <laughs> right yeah. yeah no definitely it's an interesting thing i took a political stance on that like let's call it what it is and fortunately on my hand i found so many sources by not only us presidents like Woodrow Wilson and his key advisors like Robert Lansing etc that are calling it such that are saying this is illegal and yet we're still going to go in etc and i think the terminology of occupation and sometimes you'll hear the terminology of intervention and pacification it's too lukewarm and doesn't do justice to the near 20 years of sheer violence that was enacted by this U.S. invasion in Haiti. Wow. Uh, the, the, the term, you spent some time with the term banditry mm. and how it's overloaded. Can you flesh out that out for us, please? Yeah, no, totally. This whole idea of bandit, right? When we think about it, oftentimes we think of unscrupulous beings or people can come see it, they're like vagabonds to an, uh, to an extent. And I was thinking of like, how do we reframe this and seeing like the U.S. military archives repeatedly call the cockles bandit, 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 thugs, vagabonds, etc. And then yet within their sources, they're also acknowledging that these people are organized um, in terms of a military unit, but that there is a political mission behind it. And so for me, thinking and sitting with the letters from Shalman Perat, from people like Ben Abrataville, even the exchange between his mother, Masina Perat, as well as himself, you're sort of seeing there is just political manifestations coming out where they're saying, down with the U.S. Americans, they're the ones who are betraying uh, U.S. democracy and invading not only Haiti, but, you know, parts of the Americas, including the Caribbean. And within that story, it can't be about banditry for me. At least to me, this sounds like political resistors, political movement fighting for a free nation and a free people. Mm -hmm. uh, who was uh, Rear Admiral Caperton and what was his role in the, in the invasion? 
Definitely. Yeah. He, you know, we're Admiral uh, Caperton was one of the first people. Yeah, no worries. It was one of the first people that came into Haiti. And you sort of see at the beginning of the U.S. invasion of Haiti, he's sort of like the head chief in charge. But there's going to be a slew of other men, including John H. Russell, Smedley um, Butler, as well as Herman Hannigan, who are all charged with the same type of mission of, quote unquote, establishing political and economic stability in Haiti. And what essentially that means for the U.S. Uh, Americans who are coming in is to mean to take over the nation. And with Caperton, as well as all the way down to John H. Russell, this idea of um, combating resistance and combating physical activity, although they think this is going to be a swift um, action that they can uh, completely thwart and completely eliminate what they find in the hands of Shalman Perad and so many of these CACOS members and CACOS supporters that resistance is hard to quell. Mm. Uh, I, I was a little surprised by this, and I, I guess I'm admitting my ignorance. What was Frederick Douglass doing in Haiti? I did yeah. not know that. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. No, not at all. Right. When we think about like some of the, you know, the, some of the, the stories of the past that were not told as well. I didn't learn about it myself until graduate school. So what they essentially did was appoint him, particularly because he's this abolitionist, you know, uh, this very famous uh, African-American orator and is seen as somebody who can go into Haiti and one that they would identify with racially. So he's given this role not only because of his qualifications, but because they felt that Haitians would identify physically and racially with Frederick Douglass in order to be the equivalent of what we would consider like an ambassador today. And so Frederick Douglass is charged with this, you know, sort of contradictory role of going into Haiti, trying to negotiate the Mole Saint-Nicolas um, as a, a territory for U.S. Americans. It's interesting to that he muses on this idea of saying he, as a black male coming into this black country, having to face this task and quickly realizing in his negotiations with Haitians that these are people who fought for sovereignty and fought for their own territory and they're not going to back down and give it up without a fight. So the fact that he quickly is attuned to that sentiment um, of Haitian nationalism, I think is very, it's just like a, it's just a rich source, you yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Has enough been written about that? I think a number of people in the field know about Frederick Douglass's role. But in terms of just like when we, you know, when you, you're you in these college classrooms and students are just like, oh, my gosh, I wish I knew about this. And I'm mm-hmm. like, you know, there's an intentional way where we're not talking about black victorious stories or black resistors and to see this going on and still persisting in 2021 you know it's mm-hmm. sort of disheartening but not yeah. surprising right uh, you 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 talk about you wrote about the germans using matrimonial alliances uh, mm-hmm. with with haitians to 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 exploit us economically what uh, can you can you flesh that out for us a little bit more what do you what do you mean by matrimonial alliances what, what does that sure. look like Yeah, definitely. So, you know, thinking about our ancestors themselves and putting in that 1805 constitution that no foreigners, particularly no white man, can step foot in Haiti 
to own property, including humans, right? So this um, this sort of ode to, yes, we are going to be this abolitionist state, but this idea of not having territory. And so the fact that the 1805 Constitution precluded white foreign ownership of Haiti's lands, one of the ways that Germans who migrated to Haiti found a way around that caveat was actually marrying local Haitian women. And for them, establishing schools um, and different types of institutions for their German-Haitian children became a way that they circumvented. Uh, there's a section in your book, you talk about uh, Haitian complicity and resistance. Uh, so what was going on internally in the in 19th century Haiti, uh, what was the country wrestling with as far as uh, its political identity? I think it was a situation that's complicated, right? In the sense that you just fought a revolution that had multiple contours. It's not simply about abolition, but then there's this also idea of like the populations fighting for Haiti to be sovereign were at once time enslaved the majority, those who were freed and those who were free. And so I think many nations grapple with this, but looking specifically at Haiti, it's just like, how do you then govern a population that has these different categories and different experiences, but then also the reality of land and land being a a space and a, and a tool for the common good. And so you sort of see in this 19th century moment, just different members of the leaders of the nation state grappling with this idea of how to properly govern Haitians. And so many of them think it's a monarchy. Others think it's a republic state, et cetera. Some, you sort of see them with the construction of the citadel. There's also this sense of we're grappling with the internal chaos and the internal sort of um, how to figure out how to govern one another, but then also these external presence of France not having recognized Haiti's independence and certainly the U.S. being so close and not having recognized it as well, that there is this offensive and defensive position that's occurring in that period. Mm -hmm. uh, the Kakos, uh, what are their origins and uh, can you tell us about how they started? And do you feel like in some ways, uh, uh, at least the spirit, maybe not in, in, in you know, uh, organizationally, that it's, to a certain extent they still exist in all Haitians today who, mm -hmm. who have, you know, a penchant to not like people meddling in our affairs, you know? Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. I love that question, too. It was interesting because all I kept hearing about was the cockles of 1915. And, you know, nothing exists in a vacuum. And I kept thinking to myself, what is the like, how do we trace these people backwards and looking at them from the 19th century periods? Like these are the people who participated in the Haitian Revolution, right? Those people who felt like they were the Mawans fighting specifically for abolition and freedom. And so when they here again in the 1860s, there's this moment where for them, the Haitian state at the time under Sylvain Salnav was too cooperative with the U.S. government. And you sort of see the Kakos re-emerging. And there's this idea of them like fighting with their feet, fighting with their bodies, right? So even if they're not leaving manifestos behind at during those time periods, specifically, uh, the ways that they fight and how they fight really 
articulate how for them this is about political resistance and ruling themselves. And then when we go into like the 20th, uh, 20th century and looking at the time of Shalman Perad and Wuzal Vobobo, et cetera, et cetera, you sort of see it's the same methodology of these people who have organized not simply amongst the peasantry, but have also spread in terms of newspaper editors publishing ideas about Haitian sovereignty. And I'm finding that, wow, they're linked to the Kakos themselves. So they engage in these military battles against the U.S. Uh, invaders and also, you know, oftentimes sacrifice their lives for this greater good. So, uh, Palim, the, the research, like, in Haiti, what that was like, this is obviously pre-COVID, right? So, yeah. yeah. So, so what was that like? What was like, you know, how did the, the, the people receive you, you know, mm-hmm. or, you know, especially the alternative archives uh, sites type of deal? Like, how did they receive you? How, what was your general impression of, of when they knew what you were doing? And uh, what, what was that like? Yeah. Yeah, no, totally. I think the research was so fulfilling, right? Like at first people kept telling me, oh, you have to go to France. And of course, the U.S. military archives. And I'm like, yes, the U.S. military archives for sure. But fuck my, fuck my, to study how this story unfolded and the staff members at the Bibliothèque Nationale in particular and St. Louis were just wonderful in terms of providing so many sources that I was uh, looking through and then having the opportunity to meet Shalman, Pedat's family, members of there and traveling to Anshore, just going to different sites of where the Kakos themselves had engaged in battle. It's like, wow, this was beautiful to document. But then you sort of see also like history literally erupts everywhere in IT. So when I would encounter murals, I'm like, oh my goodness, this is like they're talking about this is like 2006 and they're like putting Shaman Pedat on par with Jean-Jacques Dessalines and what is this about? Mm-hmm. And other murals where here's the Haitian flag being torn, not only by a minister soldier, but Haitians in this tug of war pulling their flag back. And all of these moments really added to looking at how Shaman Pedat is remembered, but also this ideology that sovereignty it's in our tulip and it's something that we need to defend. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, researching in the country is where I would always say start first and foremost when people are looking at Haiti and Haitians. And unfortunately, it's not as done um, as a priority as we all would like, right? This idea of ale Haiti pour comprendre haïtien avec avec haïtien. So, yeah. So, vous pensez the archive, those 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 uh, institutions, do you think we they get enough support? Do you think uh, is we give them enough support for them to... Because I've, I've heard some historians say this is something of a mess there. That Do they need some financial support so those very important sites are protected? Like, to what extent do you think those institutions, historical institutions in Haiti who are preserving or trying to preserve our history... Do they? Do you think they need more support from the diaspora or from uh, from organizations in the states or around the world? Yeah, I think definitely people who can uh, contribute financially. 
but also this idea of restoring some of our sources, right? So sources that you're finding in France or in the U.S., whether it's the National Archives or the Military Archives. Like one of the things that I appreciated about the U.S. Military Archives that I visited, I was like, can I make some of the copies of this and give it to Haiti? restore Because this is part of their story. And they were receptive to that. So I think oh, wow. all of us doing our part to say, oh, you know, this is something that is also important to our study of the past that it makes sense. I found that the Bibliothèque Nationale and the San Luis Gonzaga were very neat and orderly for me. I know a number of people have talked about the Archive Nationale not necessarily being um, the most organized. I didn't get a chance to go to the Archive Nationale and luckily all the other repositories filled in this story uh, in a different way. But I think definitely as much as we can help our repositories of knowledge, why not? And I know there's mm-hmm. been an effort on the part of the Digital Library of the Caribbean that involves a number of universities who are talking about digitizing, um, not even talking about it, actually digitizing some of these archival remnants of the past. So it's in the works, but we can always do more. What is the etymology of the word kako? So in tracing it, they talk about, it's like, it could be either one of two things. One being the the garment that peasants wear, kaku. And then also people talk about, well, maybe it's this, uh, the, 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 the Haitian bird known as taco, spelled T-A-C-C-O, and this red-plumed uh, paragon. And it's an interesting way in which when Shalman Pedat talks about God feeds little birds, that he's using this history of the past of, yes, the etymology of the cacos could be a bird, could also be this peasantry population that's going to form the bulk of the cacos movement, but that we are going to attack the Zandolites, those people who have come to invade us and prey on them specifically. And the Zundolit at this time period being referred to as the U.S. invaders and empire. Tell us about uh, the early years of Francois Bourgeois Charlemagne Parag. <laughs> I, th- I think I'm going to name my next child after him. Uh, you you, uh, you said in your book that uh, his, his birth was sort of the foresh- it foreshadowed his uh, revolutionary dispositions. Mm-hmm. How so? Yeah, I think about like how he's born in this century, right? Like 1804, this declaration of this Haitian state as free. And here he comes in 1885, um, Masina Perat and Remy Perat being his parents and thinking about just like where he's born in Esh and thinking about our own past uh, stories of Maonaj, specifically around these areas, that there's an interesting way that the sentiment of the revolution has to infuse use this man at this time period. And so you sort of see in looking at his story, he's his mom's sole biological son, although she's going to have um, other bonus sons from her uh, marriage with Remy Perat. And she's close seemingly to all of them and particularly close to Shalmain Perat. And you sort of see that they work hard to provide for Shalmain in terms of giving him a quality education at San Luis for a part of time. And really, Shalman Pedat himself benefiting from his own father's um, stint as a military man. And you sort of see not only with Shalman uh, Perat, but with all of his siblings, all of his brothers, that there's a way that they're going to use this for political ascendancy. Patriotic kinship. Uh, you you say that uh, Peral uses it as, as resistance strategy. Uh, what, what did you mean? By that. Yeah, I, I no, 
I love this question, Patrick. It's one of those situations I kept thinking to myself, wow, there's so many ways in which he's writing letters to people. And it's always a fix with this idea of liberté, égalité, fraternité, right? So immediately in these 1915 documents, you sort of see this ode to this this past of uh, 1791 through 1804. And so Shalman Pedat is asking people to join the Kakos movement, sacrifice for the nation, remember Desalines, remember um, Pétion, and restore Haiti to sovereignty. And then there's also this way in which through how he acts as well as cockles, that there's a way in which this kinship around patriotism and what does it mean to be on bon haïtien form. So there are some people who are not fighting militarily against the U.S. invaders. What I found with this terminology of patriotic kinship is that they wanted to protect Charlemagne Pidat and the cockles fighters themselves. Um, and in so many ways, I look at how these people, this community, whether they're harboring the cacos, protecting them, saying they are not going to disclose information about them or feed them, that they form this community of patriotic kinship. Yeah, I I had a hard time uh, trying to, and maybe it's the way you know my 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 corporate mind works, uh, trying to uh, fashion or or frame the revolutionary committee. And the and the cacos are, are they more liquid than solid in terms of their formation? You know, so uh, can you talk about you know what these two groups have in common? And I thought that was like a fascinating uh, 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 issue I was having trying to say, okay, what are these groups really? You know, and do yeah. they exist on paper or do they exist as sort of uh, part of that kinship you were talking about. I think it's this idea, if you think about the phrase, just like hidden in plain sight, right? Mm-hmm. And so both the Revolutionary Committee as well as the Kakos become members who are resisting against the U.S. invaders. What was interesting to find was how many members of the Kakos were in fact Revolutionary Committee members and vice versa. And so for the U.S. invaders themselves, they're thinking that these people, the Revolutionary Committee being seen as folks who are politicians, newspaper editors, lawyers, etc., are not interacting with whom they think are the Kakos, and they're defining the Kakos simply as members of the peasantry. So for them, these people are worlds apart, etc. And what Haitians do and do so well during this period is that they use all of these tools and say, as a Revolutionary Committee member, I'm going to make speeches that say, I do not want the U.S. to spread its eagle wings um, across the Americas specifically. And these same Revolutionary Committee members are cacos who are then burning and destructing railway um, trains and, you know, uh, just sites of where U.S. corporations are and then engaging the U.S. militarily. And so in very interesting ways, these uh, groups blend and also reinforce each other. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, as far as uh, Peral and his uses of like, Haitian sensibilities, why... Uh, he, he sort of used these historical figures, Dessalines and Pétion. Why, uh, 
Why those two in particular? I think for many people, and I had to sit with this one too, like there's an interesting way he's always going to mention Desaline. And we, if we think about Desaline, you know, being one who had survived slavery and evolved from slavery, having um, done away with it in the nation that he's one of the ancestors that a number of people know and perhaps know well in comparison to Pétion, who has a very different story from Desaline itself in terms of this is a man who is free. So it makes me think about how Shalman Pedat talks about this idea of the multiple uh, sections of Haitians within Haiti themselves. It's like the nation wasn't simply formed um, from those who were freed or those who were formerly enslaved, but encompassing this broader history of what does this population look like? So I think in a clever and astute way, calling on someone like Jean-Jacques de Saline and Alexander Pétion sort of talks about how do we then elevate both of these ancestors who've had different experiences um, to in this cause specifically. Haitian the president that you can have a puppet of the U.S. government or not? Because you seem to kind of complicate his role a bit as, you know, the front man for the U.S. invasions. But I got a sense of like there was a reluctance on his part to, to be totally in. Am I did I read that incorrectly? Yeah, no, you didn't at all. Yeah, Dante Guinab, I remember just like seeing the startling image of him, you know, sitting down and then he's flanked on all three sides by U.S. soldiers in particular. And seeing that image really screams at this idea of how, yes, he's president of Haiti, but by name only, right? And so you look at the records from this election, which is what I call his uh, his ascendancy in 1915. And they did. They selected Dante Guinab because they felt that he would be acquiescent to U.S. policies in comparison to someone like Rosalvo Bobo. And it isn't until the end of this occupation period, or at least the end of his uh, term specifically, that we're hearing from Dante Guinab protesting against U.S. invaders. And so they would typically tell him that, you know, you are president because we are in Haiti, etc. So reminding him of that sort of puppet role. And even mm-hmm. like right after when Shalman Pedat dies, they went, they embarked on this tour to continue like squashing Haitian resistance. And this whole idea that they would parade Dante Grinav to places like Ancho Las Caobas to talk about the good that U.S. is doing, you know, really like reinforces this idea of how he becomes a tool of empire for them. Can you talk mm-hmm. about those 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 the Haitian press at the time and their role in the invasion? Yeah, definitely. So yeah, definitely the two more popular ones are Les Matins avec les Nouvelles. And they occupy sort of not necessarily a complicated role, but I don't necessarily divide one or the other as pro or anti-U.S. invasion, particularly because when you look at articles across the time period, you sort of see instances of each where people will talk about, um, you know, Haitians are resisting or this idea that we're going to fly our flags on May 18th. Or there's one point in during this uh, story of invasion, the editors at one point talk about and remind U.S. Americans of how Haitians fought in the Battle of Savannah, which is a nice and subtle way of saying your sovereignty is also because of us. So I think they occupy multiple roles within the invasion. And although the uh, the invaders themselves try to 
I don't know necessarily use it as a mouthpiece, but publishing this idea of we're searching for Pedat, we're searching for Benat Batavilo. This is the good that we've come to accomplish, that it just becomes a way to record that. But Haitians mm-hmm. are interpreting that story very differently on the ground. You know, I'm a former military guy. As a, as a technical <laughs> matter, you think it becomes harder for a, a military militarily superior force like the United States at the time to defeat a, a resistance movement where uh, the, the pushback is is both open and covert and it's also at the individual level and at the collective level is it is it very hard for 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 superior forces to kind of you know clamp down on those type of uh, resistance because yeah. it's, it's formless in a lot of ways right Mm-hmm. And it's interesting, too, because it has its forms, right? Unfortunately, mm-hmm. the U.S. military at the time just refused to acknowledge it initially. And then when they did, they're sort of confused. So like this whole idea of double speed, voyage, cachemire of saying, wow, the cacos exist, but they only ex- they only have bamboos. The cacos don't exist. And if we kill all of their leaders in particular, they'll be done. And then what you find is that in this practice of their doublespeak, not only are they deploying more troops, engaging in bombing the population, et cetera, but really writing specifically about the number of Haitians who are participating in it. And so I think it takes them a while to realize that the arson being committed by Haitians against them, the jailbreaks to protest against the protests against the killing of Haitians, as well as the use of different uh, Haitian markets, specifically who are talking about this invasion period are all connected. And it shocks them, like people like Auguste Magloire, who they thought were on their side um, as a gendarme member, et cetera, et cetera, were actually really working with the Kakos. But I think it's, it's a form of sort of you know, you're not legitimizing Black intellectual or Black political thinking. Mm -hmm. And so for them, coming in with that type of attitude really limited how they tried to stifle resistance. Mm Talk to us about the Haitian-American Treaty of 1915, how it wasn't really Haitian-American in the uh, collaborative sense. I think even the, you know, the naming of it as the Haitian-American Treaty, I think when I first approached that text, I'm like, oh, it's going to be authored by Haitian predominantly, (laughs) etc. And then when you look at it, you know, for those people who are like familiar with Cuba and U.S. interactions with Cuba, this is like the Platt and Teller Amendment um, happening all again, this idea of we will permit you to exist as long as you follow our uh, sort of guidance about your political as well as your economic sovereignty. And even this idea at the end of the treaty where they talk about we will remain in Haiti for this amount of years, right? And if you're thinking you're, you've are you come to Haiti to establish stability, why would it take you 10 years to do so, etc.? So it's an interesting way in which I think it's very 
visible in how they're not accounting for Haitian voices and Haitians' thoughts on this process um, of this U.S. military invasion specifically. But it's very plain. I don't think they even tried to mask it because this idea, as you're saying, with the approval of the president of the United States and having that repeated almost Mm -hmm. for every article really just screams about that power, privilege, and really dominance at the time. I'm going to zero in on Article 11. Uh, specifically mm. about trade with other countries, uh, do, can you do, can you think of some specific effects that that had and in, in the growth of, of of the country not only for the duration of the occupation but uh, how much did it set Haiti back? Did it restrict our growth in any way or right? No, definitely. I mean, I think it just like you know, it just in so many ways again screams about this violence that's happening on that economic level. So the fact that you can come into a nation that's established itself as independent and tell them who they can trade with and essentially only trade with the United States really reveals um, the story of economic imperialism at the time. And in terms of just setting Haiti back, your ability to not interact with other nations on an economic level, of course, is going to have consequences. But the way that they make it plain, uh, the U.S. people writing these various articles, again, really just speaks about their tools of empire that they launched against Haitians. Can you talk about the gendarme and the corvée system, please? Yeah, totally. So the gendarmes themselves become sort of like another tool of U.S. empire in the sense where they want these military people, and then later this is going to include um, Haitians themselves, to specifically deal with this banditry problem, right? So if you, I always use the word, when they say banditry, I think of resistors themselves. And you sort of see in this interactions of gendarmes, whether it is a U.S. American or in Haitian, it's this idea of we need to squat resistance. And oftentimes what you find is that the gendarmes themselves were part of administering this corvée system and the corvée system being unpaid labor, laborers who are tasked with unifying the nation in terms of building roads, building bridges, etc. Um, it becomes an instance where so many people like Shalman Pirat and so many others are talking about the Blanc have come to restore slavery, right? The um, to reinstitute slavery particularly because of the gross amount of killings and abuse that came along this corvée. And one of the things that's fascinating is the U.S. military knows that it's abusive. Like, it goes through a situation where it is essentially abolished in the nation four times under the U.S. uh, sort of surveillance of it. And during the second iteration, they actually blame Haitians for the abuse. They're like, it's not us, it's the Haitian gendarmes who are committing these abuses. And then at each time that they abolish it, and again, to, to have it be abolished uh, four times is really telling about just the amount of killings and other tor- types of violent abuses that Haitians had to endure under the corvée system. Who was uh, Pierre uh, Benoit Lamour and what was his role in the resistance? <laughs> <laughs> totally. I said, oh gosh, when I found him, I was like, oh my goodness. It's like this beautiful moment of like this Kakos leader who's very much of that same ilk, like the Kakos themselves saying, we need to tap into our past in order to launch this movement and sustain this movement against the invaders. And so he's a Kakos leader who, you know, talks about um, Desaline as well and these cries for liberty and is organizing very 
very much like Shalman Pirat and Rosalvo Bobo to talk about we need to do away with these resistors. And looking at some of his letters that he left behind, as well as his proclamations, you sort of see that use of historical nationalism, uh, specifically to mobilize Haitians and tell them that, yes, it's time to defend your nation. Uh, the 1916 prison break. Uh, how, and and how that resulted in the U.S. I guess creating a sort of a clandestine service to mm-hmm. uh, to deal with that. Uh, also, do you think it was an inside job involving the the, the prison break? Oh yeah, no, totally. Like I think they were so shocked. They were like, "Wait, how did these Haitians? You know, oftentimes these people in prison, another tool of empire is to imprison those who are thinking out loud and resisting out loud. And so what you find is that there are a number of Kakos who are imprisoned by these uh, invaders specifically. And then the thing that complicates this with the gendarme. Although the U.S. has created the gendarme um, and many of them are Haitians, you'll find that some of these Kakos members are, in fact, gendarme and vice versa. And so this prison break happens and people are escaping to the Dominican Republic. They're escaping via uh, sewer. And it shocks the U.S. military invaders specifically that there is that type of political organizing. And so even as they're recording this as saying this is an outbreak, the person in charge was unprofessional, et cetera, et cetera, they're also legitimizing that these people have successfully uh, resisted against their own imprisonment as well. And there was about 500 plus, right, prisoners mm-hmm. uh, escaped. Yeah. So uh, what kind of what, the, the Kakos, how did they, they help hasten the end of the U.S. occupation? Yeah, I think they're You know, their example of not only fighting in various military battles, sometimes spread out in less than 24 hours. I think at one point under Shalman Pirat, as well as Benoit Batraville, sometimes they were engaging the U.S. military twice a day at different parts. So even thinking about their strategies there of spreading out battles, of making sure that it is quick and um, that it happens in rapid succession. All of these are tools that the the Kakos are using for their political resistance. And so, you know, Shalman Pirat unfortunately sacrifices his life um, for this cause because what ends up happening is that the U.S. invaders lynch him and later launch this um, sort of strife against Ben Abatraville and assassinate and kill Batraville as well. And I think in multiple ways, you sort of see the Kakos regrouping um, through their ministers of war, their ministers of finance, etc., and keeping that fight going. But I think in the example of seeing someone like Pirat assassinated in the way that he was, that it keeps the resistance movement going amongst Haitians. And for that, I think so much about the Haitian women who are publishing at the time about the experiences of their own sexual abuse or people like uh, uh, Jacques Oumet who are talking about the effects of the military invasion as well. And so resistance is going to continue through 1934. And again, it's not this isolated, uh, spontaneous moment, but that it's like the, for the entire time that the invasion was there from 1915 to 1934, so war Haitians resisting. And I think the Kakos played such a key role in guiding this type of resistance. There's so much more we could cover uh, <laughs> in this book. It's, it's, it's an amazing, amazing read. What uh, what's what's next for you, Professor Alexis? What's uh, what's what's what, what do you have? What do you got cooking next? What are you, what are you looking at? 
<laughs> Who do I have cooking? Thank you so much. You know, celebrations. I think we need to just celebrate this moment. And I'm, I'm just really excited to have this book out in press. And I really am just so grateful, not only for the press, Rutgers University Press and Critical Caribbean Studies series who believed in this work, but to hear so many people gravitating towards it and learning different uh, stories of our past has been very humbling and grateful. And so the next project for me is actually to pick up uh, Shalman Perat's mother, so Madame Masina Perat, and looking at her specifically and other Haitian women and how they organize uh, against this invasion period. So really bringing to light the voices of Haitian women, particularly during this period, is where I think I'm going to next. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, professor, merci, merci beaucoup pour visiter. <laughs> okay. A pleasure to nerd out with people. So I'm like, thank you, Patrick, for this. <laughs> <laughs> merci, merci beaucoup. Okay. Okay, bonne journée. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Negmaon Podcast. And that's Maon with a W, not an R. See you next time.